Human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ember Sadat. Join me and my co-host, Ace Deliri, as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. Welcome to Risky Conversations. Michael, please introduce yourself to our, our listeners. So my name is Michael Bonner. I've done a lot of, uh, you know, wild and weird things in life, but uh, I am a historian of Persia, uh, an independent historian. I did my two higher degrees at uh, Oxford. Uh, I began academic life as a classicist, but was always fascinated by the uh, the history of Iran from the time of uh, the Achaemenid Empire and the, the Empire of Cyrus and so forth, all the way up to post-Islamic times and the, the, the poetry of uh, Hafez and Molavi and, and, and so forth. Uh, but I did, my, uh, I did my master's and doctorate on the history of the Sasanian Empire, the, uh, the empire uh, of Iran right before the, the, the Arab conquest and, and the coming of Islam. A very uh, understudied subject, and I wanted a challenge, so I did it. However, in, in real life, I'm I'm not affiliated with any academic institution. I'm actually a policy advisor within the uh, the government of Ontario. I, I live in Toronto with uh, my wife and and two sons. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We love people who have done weird and strange things in life because they have the best stories to tell. Uh, so let's start with uh, your interest in, 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 in Iran. How did that even spring up? Because you don't usually hear a, uh, a Canadian person having any kind of interest. Usually they have interest in medieval history or they usually have an interest in, uh, you know, American history. But how did, yeah. how did the, the, the love for Persia come out for you? Well, that's a good question. I, I would say that I was very fortunate as, uh, you know, as, as a boy in school being introduced to uh, a good deal of very ancient history. You know, um, when I was in, you know, grade four and five, you know, we, we were introduced to uh, sort of like pre prehistoric uh, archaeology and anthropology and then, you know, sort of plunged into the the early history of civilization and the agricultural revolution and so forth. And of course, that quickly that 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 quickly gets us into the the, the sort of early uh, historical empires of, you know, Assyria and Babylon and, you know, Sumeria. I think I've got those in reverse order, but, you know, Sumeria was first and then, you know, we get uh, Assyria and Babylon. And of course, the great Persian Empire uh, established by Cyrus the Great was the sort of center of civilized life for a very long time. And what uh, we think of as the beginnings of Western history with this sort of Greek uh, city-states and eventually the you know the conquests of Alexander the Great and the, the appearance of the Roman Empire and so forth. All of that is actually peripheral to what was really the center, as I said, what was really the center of of civilized life. That it, that it was Persia, uh, it was the Achaemenid Empire that was the model of uh, you know good. Uh, uh, of a well-ordered state, uh, you know, good good laws, a powerful military, and um, uh, the, the writers, Greek writers like Herodotus and and uh, Thucydides, I think, are very evidently in, in awe of it. And being introduced to 
being introduced to uh you know near near eastern near eastern history and the the history of greece and rome and the mediterranean world really you know you can't you can't really study those things unless you study persia and for me that was the most fascinating that was the most fascinating angle of it and uh it it never really left i i eventually went into classical studies and 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 you know i i did latin and greek in, throughout school and then in university but it was always it was always persia that that was the uh the most interesting part of it and that that uh, that has stayed with me right right and i was just uh you know in in preparation uh for for our conversation but i did look into the uh, uh persian empire pre the islamic um, I guess you would call it. What would you call that when when they kind of merged uh, and brought in some of the ideas that kind of stifled what I found to be the most beautiful aspect of of ancient Persia? My question to you is this: I mean, uh, given the uh, massive influence of it, because I was just looking into their history and how far and wide they, they, their influence spread, how is it that an empire that that well founded in the sense of how you know uh, they, they manage their, their their government, their laws, and all that, how do they actually fall into the invasion by the Arabs. What was it that precipitated the? I'm sure it was multiple stages, but what are some of the key highlights that allowed that to happen? Because uh, it's always been a fascinating concept for me to, to look into. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a very that, that's also a very good question, and of course, it's bound up with you know questions of Iranian identity and and even you know like the uh the last the the last uh, 20th century king of iran you know his 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 notion of you know 2000 years of of iranian kingship and of course the islamic republic is is you know a fundamentally different has a fundamentally different idea of what constitutes iranian identity the the key, the key fact is uh, looking at the fall of the of the of the pre-islamic uh, Iranian Empire is that it, it, it is it is uh, it, uh, the the Arab conquest was as surprising then when when we have to we have to cast our minds back to the uh, you know to the seventh century and and earlier to, in order to uh, you know get get into the uh, get into the facts what we're dealing with is two great world empires Persia and Rome who had you know, existed, you know, far beyond what what any living person could have remembered, as far as anybody would have been concerned at the time that Persia and Rome were, you know, they had always been there, and they were destined to be there forever. Their, their two uh, biggest uh, external threats would, would have been basically nomads from the, the world of the steppe, uh, everyone knows about the Germanic barbarians who, uh, you know, overthrew Rome, mm-hmm. and, and you know many people have heard of the Huns. Um, yeah. Those those threats were far more serious uh, along the northeastern frontier of the Iranian Empire. So you know most of the efforts of defending these two places went into you know the sort of northern northeastern fronts um and the idea that the idea that uh arabs were were you know sort of an existential threat would never have occurred to anyone or mm. if it had occurred it would not have been it would not have been considered anywhere near as serious as as uh, the more dangerous uh uh nomads uh coming from coming from the steppe so 
I think that there's there's an element there's there's an element of the sort of uh, you know uh, un, unforeseen the sort of randomness of history that that comes in here. But we're also dealing with two powers who were at war most of the mm. time. Rome, right. Rome and Persia were almost constantly fighting, and the uh, the context in which in which Islam appears is one in which the two have basically exhausted. Uh, one another's resources and military power. Uh, I- Iran, Iran had finished a massive uh, military effort, which saw almost the complete conquest of the Roman Empire. The Romans were, uh, you know, re- they were able to reverse that relatively quickly, but at great cost uh, mm. to themselves. And to cut a long story short, the Arabs who were, you know, um, largely uninvolved in that conflict, were able to take advantage of a of a of a weakened uh, uh, sort of weakened border area, weakened security in the uh, sort of southern flanks of of those two empires, and by the time they crossed into the the region of uh, the Persian capital. Uh, in, in, in the vicinity of modern Baghdad, incidentally, mm. Mm. Uh, there was very little stopping them, mm. and and you know you had had a situation in which Persia and Rome are exhausted, they're they're humiliated, their uh, military forces are greatly reduced, and mm. several kings and queens in rapid succession had had come and gone from the Iranian throne there was really very little resistance that uh, that could be met and once the capital was taken you know there there was there was resistance for a long time but as long as the capital was was uh, was conquered there was really no turning back so that that's a long story short you're going to have to read the <laughs> gonna have to read the full book when it when it when it finally comes out but uh, that, that's that's it in a nutshell fair enough so the question i have for you on this front is what was the reason why the uh the persians and the the romans were in conflict with each other it seems like they they share a lot of common ideas i guess and now they do because some of the ideas have merged together but at the time that they were at war with each other was it just a land grab situation or is it an ego situation or is it just like there was fundamental philosophical differences between the two empires ah another deep question well i i think i think we should we should take that in reverse order there okay in in a sense in a sense there was fundamental there were fundamental philosophical differences that the you know the the uh, the power centered in the mediterranean uh you know long long before there were any romans uh, who, who could, you know, or long before there was any Roman Empire, the power centered in the Mediterranean was the um, was the Macedonian, uh, you know, the 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 the, the conquests of Alexander the Great were uh, quickly encroaching further and further east uh, into in, in into uh, the into the Achaemenid Empire founded by by Cyrus, the first Persian Empire, and you know the 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 rest is you know cliche the rest is history but the fact is that the 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 conquest of the first persian empire by 
by uh, Alexander the Great is what brought the Mediterranean world, uh, you know, face to face with uh, with with the with the uh, the Iranian one, and um, the Romans the, the 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 Roman Empire basically inherited that 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 situation. And by the time of, say, the Emperor Augustus, who established the, or basically the, the fall of the Roman Republic and the, the reign of the Emperor Augustus, which is the beginning of the, the imperial period, you have, you have the Roman world centered in the Mediterranean, and then you have the, the, the so-called Parthian Empire centered, uh, on, uh, uh, the, the Iranian plateau, who are basically sharing um, you know, they're basically sharing a border or at least with overlapping spheres of influence, you know, with with some notable exceptions. But for mo- for the most part, they're sharing they're, they're sharing spheres of influence or they're overlapping from the the Caucasus in the north right, right down, right down into the Arabian Peninsula in the south and you know there 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 are some you know local kings maybe who are who are some of them are subject to Iran some of them are subject to Rome but eventually these little kingdoms all get swallowed up and you have the two great powers face to face along uh, a very poorly defined border and you know in history that that kind of a situation is is almost always going to lead to to conflict and and uh and and warfare and it 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 did in 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 this case and you have you have basically the two powers facing off trying to gain the smallest possible advantage uh you know a little bit of territory here a little bit there uh you know trying to exert more and more influence over places like armenia and 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 georgia uh winning over one Arab tribe or another, uh, you have that situation basically going nonstop for hundreds of years until, uh, until, uh, you know, there are, there are outbreaks of, of outright war, uh, and, and one power is basically determined to, you know, if not actually to destroy the other one, then to get as, to, to extract whatever advantage, uh, it possibly can. Now, the the fascinating thing uh for me anyway is that the two powers rome and iran throughout m- really most of their history they're basically evenly matched that they're the two great superpowers of the day that uh f- there's no there's not really any hope of one totally destroying the other and as much as 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 much as it would have been hard for one or the other to acknowledge uh, having an equal in the world, mm. eventually they had to, and right. they the you know the the Roman emperor had to admit that the the Persian king was his equal, and that mm. and and the same for same the other way around. So amidst these conflicts you do have periods of of cooperation as well and the cooperation was usually provoked um, or necessitated by mutual threats whenever the two powers were more seriously threatened by external enemies uh it was more likely that they were going to 
cooperate. And as, as I alluded before, nomads coming from, you know, inner Asia, such as the Huns or, uh, mm. you know, the, uh, the Turks eventually, you know, they, the, such forces were far more threatening to, to the two powers than either was to the other. So you do have some cooperation there as well. So you said you chose to study the Sasanian Empire because it was rarely studied before. Was there anything that you learned while studying this topic that made you feel like you made the right decision? Well, yeah. Um, first, I would say um, if you like if you like languages, as, as mm-hmm. I do, you're going to have to know a lot of them to uh, to, to study uh, Sasanian Persia. So it's a good uh, you know it was a good adventure for for me uh, since I was not. You know, I was always fascinated by history, but I was not originally a historian. I was originally uh, a classicist, and then I learned languages like Arabic and, and and Persian, and eventually Armenian. And and you know, you need you need to have a good arsenal to understand uh, to understand the sources, and and you know that was that was kind of fun. Um, but you know, the the truth is that one one of the most fascinating things is that. You know, when you, I found when I when I was studying this subject, it was it, it was like revealing that all the, or at least virtually virtually all the old assumptions about it were just completely wrong. I mean, I mean, people used to think people used to think that the Sasanian Empire was you know virtually empty, that it, that it was like uh, somehow underpopulated. And you know, horribly impoverished, and you know that they had no skill or whatever, and that they had to keep importing Roman prisoners of war to keep the population high or whatever. And that that's just nonsense. You know, they, they, and, and you you know ideas like that were repeated well into the 20th century, and it's just it's just rubbish. There were other old ideas like you know the the, the Iranian Empire could never really you know it didn't have much military infrastructure or like they didn't even have their they didn't even have their own currency so and that's why they had to keep you know extracting tribute from rome and things like that it's just nonsense mm-hmm. the, the, uh, and, and i'll give you just i'll give you one example of uh of uh you know one example that proves that all that stuff is wrong that the the uh, Sasanian currency, the silver uh, silver uh, dram of of, uh, of of the Persian Empire, never wavered. That it, the the amount of silver in it hardly changed over the course of you know 400 450 years. Wow. Uh, which means that that the purity like the purity of the silver to me, anyway, suggests that you have a very strong centralized government that is maintaining uh, unwaveringly strict control over yes. over the money system mm-hmm. in in a way that is just completely unknown in the Roman Empire. That the emperors are constantly debasing or devaluing the the the, the gold uh, currency that they the, the gold uh, uh, solidus they're they're shaving off bits of it or you know like introducing some alloy into it and that's just a fiscal system that's a fiscal system that is just out of control and and 
And there is no parallel to that in the Iranian world. You have a much more powerful centralized state. You know, Iranian coins are found all over the world, you know, deep into China. And, you know, uh, there, there's no, there, there's, to me, there's no doubt uh, about what kind of a state is, is suggested by, by, uh, by that sort of evidence. And another thing I would point out is the the idea of military infrastructure, the uh, the the the, the so-called Great Wall of Gorgan, which stretches from, I mean it's now mostly in ruins, but it was built from you know the shore of the of the Caspian Sea uh, into the uh, the mountains through the, the region called Gorgan. You know that that was the second biggest military wall in in the entire world mm. like after after the 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 walls in in China right mm. and mm. it it would have had you know these fortresses along it and and in 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 each fortress you could have easily kept you know f- like 40,000 men and horses and things like that you know the idea that this like this is a serious empire with with massive uh, fiscal and military resources to to draw on, and it's organizing infrastructure projects on a gigantic scale. There's no parallel uh, for that sort of thing in Rome on 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 such a scale. So to go back to the original question, the the Sasanian Empire that 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 I discovered and learned about is really a fundamentally different. Uh, kind of place than 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 what is commonly described in 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 textbooks or in in even even in academic circles it's a it's a much much stronger uh much better organized uh uh you know uh military and and cultural power that can uh you know more than hold its own against rome and uh, and imperial china and and for me that was that was quite exciting yeah, you know what? As you're as you're speaking, uh, like my mind's racing because I have like a million things I want to ask up and follow up. So I just want to give some context to our listeners about Michael's point about the silver uh, currency not being devalued. That is such a crucial point because um, I'll give you two examples of where that applies. Typically, uh, from my uh, cursory understanding of history, and, I, and again, I won't. Uh, Michael is the expert here, but from what I've read, typically empires or kings, uh, you know don't really know how to manage money well. So what they end up doing is they they shave off the, 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 the coins, like he said, or they add cheaper metals to keep the supply uh, bigger so they can continue to pay, pay their army to go in and invade and whatever conquests they're participating in. To be able to achieve um, the ability to maintain a pure silver uh, at a high level uh, for that 400-year period is something astounding because even to this day, there's an application of it where we look at something like Bitcoin, which most people are somewhat familiar with, um, the reason most people aren't spending it as currency and actually holding on to it as a store of value is for the same reason, right? So if you had an old silver coin that was initially minted in the, um, you know, Sasanian Empire and you looked at that and said, Hey, given my understanding of history, I can tell that this particular emperor is going to devalue this currency. So I'm just going to hold this and not really spend it. Um, that way I know that when future ver- ver- iterations of it come out and they're less, uh, silver in them, I have a higher quality um, uh, coin to hold on to, so therefore I'll, I'll just um, not spend it. That's what's happening with Bitcoin. So that's why it's not becoming a transactional medium because it's becoming a storage of value medium. 
So this point is is massive in, in the sense that if you can appreciate the nuance of what's going on in that particular uh, fiscal responsible uh, point of view and to maintain that for 400 years is astounding. The second yeah, thing it, I want to ask, right? Because that's not, I mean, even today in, in, in current uh, modern day age, all the governments you look around the world, something like Zimbabwe would have a million percent um, inflation and they haven't only been, they've been in power, what, 30, 40 years, Mugabe, 50 years, I think, I believe it was. Yep. But um, the thing that made it fascinating for me with, with regards to what you're saying here is like, I, I, I'm reminded of um, uh, Breaking Bad and Walter White's concept of uh, we're in the empire business. So I wanted to ask a historian this kind of question because I've always been fascinated with it is, how do you start an empire? It seems like you're just like a, a dude starting up a gang and then just swallowing up other gangs and eventually just becoming the biggest gang in the, in the yard. Considering history's proclivity for extreme violence, would that be an accurate description of it, or is that too simplistic a view? No, I I agree uh, actually because you know first of all we should never underestimate the you know just the sheer level of violence in 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 history and you know the amount of the the amount the amount of warfare uh even by the standards of the 20th century you know is 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 astounding if 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 you ask me that you know that there are very few exceptions when the two powers were not uh engaged in some sort of mortal struggle so you know imagine imagine the first world war and the second world war you know just sort of being reenacted you know every you know every 30 or 40 years and lasting wow. even longer you know it's like wow. they're they're fighting virtually all the time and obviously this you know this the scale of 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 killing in the 20th century is you know like that that that, that was sort of new and exacerbated by technology but considering the fact that uh you know you've got uh uh you know, you've got two, you've got two big empires who, who have, uh, uh, you know, large, large populations and who, who are, you know, dependent mostly on, uh, you know, rents from land or, or, or agricultural production. You know, the, 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 the amount of resources that are going into just like maintaining an army and, and beating up your enemies, you know, it's, it's quite, it's, it's quite astounding. So when when a new dynasty comes to power in mm-hmm. in Iran you know you also have to factor in I mean you know the old one will get killed off that's you know pretty much a given so there's a considerable amount of violence but the 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 uh so you're saying you're saying there's no smooth peaceful transition of power there's no votes in democratic uh, processes no <laughs> alas no um, okay. and, and even within, I mean, the, the Sasanian dynasty itself, you know, it's the, the reign of each particular king was not always, uh, uh, you know, uncontested. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and that was the same in the Roman world, too, that although they didn't really have, you know, dynastic rule in, in the Roman Empire. But uh, basically, whoever could maintain the loyalty of, of the military uh, was was destined to you know keep his throne. That's that's more or less the case. In right. in in the Persian world, you also have the you also have the fact of of a handful of very powerful and old 
aristocratic families who, you know, usually have hereditary roles within within the empire and, and who uh, whose support is necessary in order for a king to to maintain his 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 power. Uh, but uh, let's let's go back to the beginning of the Sasanian state. So what what makes what what makes the Sasanian state unusual is that it has, uh, as far as all the sources uh, say, it has a very strong uh, religious uh, foundation. So it's, it's it, it, there's a there's a very there, there's a potent ideological element, and and what we're talking about here is is the Zoroastrian religion, which right. Uh, you know, goes back a long way. It's it's like a kind of reformed version of the old Indo-European religion attributed to the the prophet Zoroaster. And it's you know it's very it's 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 a matter of considerable debate whether Zoroaster even existed and if so when. Um, but by the time we're by the time we're into uh, the Sasanian period it's it's pretty much given that the, the the Zoroastrian religion goes back to uh a a priest who is living in what is now called Afghanistan who who taught uh, a doctrine of uh what we would call radical dualism uh, that there are two rival gods one Ahura Mazda who is uh, responsible for the creation of everything that is good and another one called Angra Mainyu who is responsible for everything bad and the two are engaged in a constant struggle uh, and humanity has to pick a side so according to according to the prophet Zoroaster we've got to be on the, the side of Ahura Mazda and uh, eventually uh, you know prevail and so forth Zoroastrianism gives us the concept of it. It actually introduces uh, an, uh, uh, what would have been a revolutionary notion of time. That time is divided into, uh, you know, cycles. That it has a beginning and an end, and that the the end is very similar to the the Christian or Islamic idea of uh, you know an apocalypse and the end of the world and a last judgment. Right. All, all that kind of thing, in principle, goes back to to Zoroastrianism. So, and and there are other there are other elements that are that are you know more or less well known. The the veneration of fire, for example, fire temples, uh, veneration of other elements like water and earth and so forth. Um, but you know, precisely like exactly what else. Zoroastrian would have believed is sometimes, you know, not really clear or up for debate. But uh, this was the faith of the founder of the Sasanian dynasty. His name was Ardashir. It's the it's the name Artaxerxes, uh, mm-hmm. or the name that we call Artaxerxes. Um, is that the guy they made the movie about? That, <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> played played by uh, I think a Native American actor. Uh, right. Very, very peculiar, ta- very peculiar treatment of history. That film, The Three Hundred. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's the guy. Okay. So, um, or was it Xerxes? I can't remember. I saw the film. I think it was Xerxes. Maybe it was Xerxes. Yeah. So mm. d- different guy, different guy. Okay. Um, but yeah, people should not take the Three Hundred film as a 
<laughs> as, as, as a sort of faithful recreation of real history. Right. Um, so, uh, so what what is different is this ideological foundation, the, this idea that the new the new dynasty founded by Ardashir has a religious element. Um, that is a new idea. And this comes long before, or maybe not long before. It's 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 a good it's a good hundred years before the appearance of of Constantine the Great, and you know the idea of a Christian Roman Empire. Uh, so long long before that kind of notion, the idea that the Roman state has an ideology or whatever, the Iranian state has one. That this new new uh new ruler is is has has established or or maybe even in his mind reestablished the 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 national religion of of the Iranian people uh and that he's recreated uh, a much older idea of of uh, of Persian kingship and and uh and uh statecraft and empire and that you know with the ideological mix, with the religious mix, it's a far more, far more potent force and a, and a, and a far more uh, aggressive uh, opponent to to the uh, to, to the Roman Empire, and you know it basically, I think that it, it basically set the example for for the uh, for the changes that eventually took place within the Roman state you know making Christianity the official religion and 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 that sort of thing so um so to 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 summarize that you basically have you have a new dynasty established by uh established through civil war killing off the old one establishing mm-hmm. a far more powerful centralized uh monarchy with a new uh religious uh, component and an ideology to back it up. Okay, so why is it called Iran and not still Persia? It's uh, a good question. So, um, the origin, the origin of the word Iran, is uh, is the same is the same word uh, that that comes up in the uh, in in Sanskrit as Aryan, A A R Y A N. So. Iran was once pronounced Iran or Iran, and it occurs it occurs in the um, uh, in the Zoroastrian holy book, the the Avesta, as uh, as a as a geographical term, the so-called Aryanem Vayejo, which means the like the abode the abode of the Aryan people, and this goes back to you know mythical prehistoric times of of uh, of a group of people who came from uh central central asia or somewhere somewhere in central eurasia and eventually you know populated the indian subcontinent and the iranian plateau and you find you find within uh you know within the hindu uh, vedas as well as in the avesta you find this reference to 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 some kind of theoretical or, or mythical homeland of of the of the ancient Aryans. So the name the name of Ardashir's empire, the Sasanian state, 
uh, was some version of the phrase Iran Shah, which means the Iranian Empire, uh, uh, or like Iran Shah or something like that. And Shah is the, uh, you can probably correct my pronunciation, but that's, that's still the modern word for, for, uh, like a, like a city or, a, or, or a town. Right. Right. Yep. Absolutely. But it's ancient. Uh, so, Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. No. 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 Because I was going to say, uh, I'm, this is what always throws me off. Right. So you got the Iranian uh, Aryan conversation going. Now people hear that and they automatically think Hitler and his Aryan race yeah. conversation. Are those things linked? Well, the Nazis kind of ruined it for everybody. <laughs> As they did pretty much everything they did. Yeah. The, uh, exactly. So these. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if – if, if, let me put it this way. What, if there's any truth – if there's any truth to the myth of the, the idea of the Aryanem Vajajal or like – in Sanskrit, it's called uh, Airavarta, I think. Okay. Someone can – some Sanskritologist listening can, you know, correct me. <laughs> but the, the – if there's any truth – if there's any truth to to that myth, I think what we're really talking about is a linguistic group, okay. Uh, and that the the speakers of, um, you know, well, whoever these people were, they they mm. spoke what what linguists call something like Proto-Indo-European. Okay. Nobody nobody uses the phrase Aryan language anymore. We talk about okay. Indo-European or Proto-Indo-European, which are basically, uh, you know, languages like Persian, Sanskrit, uh, modern modern Hindi, uh, Latin, Greek, Armenian, uh, and all the languages of Europe, with the exception of things like Hungarian or Basque or stuff like that. I- English is an Indo-European language too, um, and they all have words in common, and you know, like. You know, in, 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 in English, we say father. In German, you say Vater. In, right. in, 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 uh, in Latin, Pater. And of course, in Persian, Pedar, right? It all sounds right. kind of similar. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of words like that and they all have a common origin. So if there's any truth to this, it's probably most, mostly a linguistic one. Um, but there's also, uh, mm-hmm. There is also a religious element that this this idea of the the homeland, uh, the Aryanem Vajajo, that that supposedly was written by Zoroaster himself in the mm-hmm. in the um, Zoroastrian holy book, mm-hmm. and um, it implies it implies a a, a country where the the, the the true religion revealed by Zoroaster was originally practiced, and where the uh, where notions of good government and and political order and and proper uh, you know social order and everything like that first developed. So and and you know it's a myth. We I don't know I don't know if anyone can actually locate where this place was supposed to be, but um, when when Ardashir establishes his new empire and he calls it Iran Shah, 
Mm. I think that he's reinvoking, he's he's invoking this this mythical religious idea, uh, uh, and and um, sort of establishing his monarchy as the earthly counterpart to you know the or or at least the the real re- revival of the 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 ancient mythical uh you know pro- political and religious order described by Zoroaster if that if that makes if that makes any sense so so we can throw away all all the, all of the crap made up by the Nazis and and you know Focus on Zoroaster instead. Happily, happily to do so. <laughs> so the question I always had um, is, you know, this is just a technical conversation. I mean, uh, I'm a person who studied, um, you know, engineering and then I studied finance and whatnot. But how do you, like, what establishes somebody with the rights to call themselves a historian? Like, for example, you did say you aren't affiliated with any kind of university. So yeah. what, for, for our listeners who have never, I mean, we've heard of historians, but it's, it's sort of like an abstract concept. What gives somebody the right to call themselves that, and how do how do you become quote unquote an accredited uh, historian? And considering what you've told us, in the sense that you uh, have discovered a way to look at the history of this particular um, uh, empire in a way that's completely different from uh, I would imagine your, your contemporaries, how does it how does all that m- mesh together? I, I imagine historians aren't like this unified group of people who all agree on everything. But what's no. the actual process like? So how do you how do you like you know walk us through people who've never uh, delved into that world? What's the process like? Like how do you how do you become a historian? How do you become a accredited historian? How do people become discredited as historians? Because somebody mm-hmm. could just sit there and be like, oh, I read these fifty books from this corner that nobody's read, and therefore this is the true history. And so you're like, how do you evaluate and weigh the pros and cons of each person's perspective? Because as we know, history is just basically a first draft, right? Uh, well, yeah, I mean history. It, uh, so what I would say, first of all, is that like the idea that you have to have some kind of accreditation or whatever, I just think is nonsense. I mean, Agreed. The, that, that it's just none of the great, none of the great figures who wrote history that, that, that people would, you know, instantly think of when they think of, you know, history with a capital H like Herodotus or Thucydides or Sima Chen in the case of ancient China or, um, you know, someone like, uh, Tabari or Dinawari or, you know, uh, Masudi or whatever, uh, you know, none of, none of these people had, uh, university degrees. Right. None of them, none of them had, uh, you know, a piece of paper that said they're, they're historians. Um, so, the idea that you have to have some particular kind of academic formation, I think, is highly questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, although it probably helps a little bit, but you know, I, I look at a guy like Tom Holland, who is an independent uh, writer and historian, who who I think is eminently readable very easy to understand who presents you know novel ideas uh and and sometimes shocking ones while mm. still sticking very much to historical sources and you know anchoring his argument in in uh in uh, historical texts you know he he is a great historian but he's not an academic one he 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 does have an academic training uh in in the classics i believe 
but mm. not not uh, he doesn't have a university post so th there's no there's no reason to insist upon having one in order to take a historian seriously but to go back to the previous example of uh, you know like all all ancient historians um you know like herodotus and, and thucydides and so forth uh mm -hmm. that i i'll i'll reference a little paragraph from from the historian polybius Polybius, who wrote the rise, he 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 wrote a history of basic of the rise of of the Roman Empire. He himself was was of Greek origin, and he wrote in Greek. But he describes uh, in 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 at considerable length, I might add, the the rise of of the Roman uh, Roman Empire. He says that history. He says that history will never be right, or the the writing of history will never be good or proper. Unless, unless people with experience in human affairs and, and politics actually write it, because right. because that's the only way you can actually understand, uh, you know, uh, the, the 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 facts of history, especially if you're writing, you know, like political or military affairs. You have to have some experience of of these of these things, because hum I would say because human nature hasn't really changed very much mm. uh you have to be in the game uh in order to to understand it better so i would say i would say that in this respect academic historians are at a distinct disadvantage mm. that that they don't that they're not really immersed in human affairs they're observing the the affairs of their own day at you know a considerable distance in many cases and I don't, I mean, it's, it's kind of unfair maybe to generalize, but I'm going to do it anyway, that <laughs> they probably, they probably have a weak grasp of how political decisions are made. They probably right. don't, they probably don't understand, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, how, how, uh, uh, an important, uh, politician or, you know, uh, a king or an emperor or whatever would would take a decision or how advice would be brought to him and that sort of thing uh so i think that that i think that that does uh hamper their understanding of the past and of course you know very few of us have ever been in a battle or anything like that so you know understanding understanding uh, uh how military affairs would be decided or undertaken is is or executed is 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 another matter uh another matter altogether what i do i work in politics uh i'm an advisor i've done this for almost a decade um i would i would say that apart from my background as a linguist and apart from just taking an interest in reading sources that having having a political background has helped enormously in 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 understanding uh, in understanding uh, history and in getting a sense of of you know just how how any how a state would be run or managed or or what kind of what kind of political decisions a, you know a ruler would be would be faced with how to manage 
how to manage the 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 expectations of uh, you know a hostile uh, a, a hostile uh, you know opposition or a group of group of uh, critics at court or whatever you know obviously mm. obviously we're not dealing with you know any kind of a democratic state so no one would have cared what you know a ruler would not have cared necessarily what ordinary people uh would have thought about anything not necessarily mm. until until maybe you know popular opinion became you know completely uh unmanageable or you know in in the case of a of, of an outright revolt but mm. but you know politics is fundamentally the the game of us versus them to put it to put it as crudely as possible and uh i don't think that has ever changed so uh so i'm with i'm i'm definitely on the side of polybius uh who thinks mm. that who thinks that history is only ever going to be good when when uh when men of action uh write it so that's that's what i try to do um but i think i think that was another part of your question it was about like who gets to be a historian right um, so I, I would just I, I, I would I would still emphasize the same point that really the the historians that that I rely on the most from the past and the historians whom I think are the best were themselves involved in the affairs of their day. So mm-hmm. uh, a right like Procopius. Uh, Procopius is the great historian of the age of the Emperor Justinian, who who uh, devotes a lot of uh, a lot of his work to to the Persian king Khosrow Anushirvan and his father uh, Gobad or Kavad the first. You know, he himself was uh, the secretary and the you know a kind of political advisor to the general Belisarius. He he would have he he would have had access to all sorts of state papers. He would have seen his boss in action. He would have you know um, been witness to many of the battles that he describes. Uh, you know he's not always he's not always reliable. He's not always truthful. There are many uh, there are many instances where it's possible to find fault with Procopius. But I would take I would take you know a an imperfect or a liar like a lying eyewitness who over over an armchair (laughs) an armchair (laughs) academic you know any any day Mm -hmm. and uh you know even in the case of someone like Thucydides who you know uh is supposedly the you know he's he's often thought of as you know like the father of scientific history or like a you know the 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 first serious historical writer you know he himself uh was a general uh during the 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 Peloponnesian war who failed he he failed in his mission and he was forced into exile but you know he he wrote his history which was written you know 2500 years ago is still is still read today mm-hmm. so even even a military or political failure, mm. I think, can still do a better job than than uh, than a professor. Fair. I, I mean, uh, the reason I bring that up is because, um, unfortunately, the 
public education I was exposed to in Canada sort of takes the joy out of history in the sense it's always like thus they this happened this guy that guy right and so it totally turns most people off history so the, it's kind of like math it's so poorly taught the the rich tapestry of people's emotions and the reactions to it are so stripped from the the the, the data that's pushed pushed and presented to the people because for I guess I, I kind of understand why they do that because if you're going to evaluate a student's comprehension of history you kind of have to ask them on what they did what happened right so you can't really expect them to like I, I I thoroughly fell in love with history all over again when I read The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. Mm-hmm. So when I read when I read works from from somebody like that and and they kind of show you okay here's how these things precipitate here's the chain of events that lead to this and here's what this person at the time was under the impression that this was happening and then you read something like Neville Chamberlain constantly appeasing Hitler and and all he keeps coming back with is there will be peace in our time and you and you know in, in retrospect you look back at it and say look well this person was clearly fooling themselves, if not uh, anybody else. And then you, you you contrast that with somebody like Joseph Goebbels, who if um, you know the, the Nazis had uh, prevailed, he would have written history in a, in a much different way because for him, the, pr- the perspective of history was to, to capture it on film and to create a propaganda uh, sort of uh, narrative uh, to, yeah. to, to speak to the future generations. And then yet you, you, you look back now and you see that people are still in denial of lots of things that happened, like for example, the denial of the Holocaust. So History gets lost in translation. History gets lost because the meaning and joy and beauty and, and tragedy of it is stripped off of it. And so I, that's why I was really excited to have a conversation with you because it's like, okay, I've never really met somebody who's in this business who passionately cares about it. So how do you navigate that world? Like, what's that world really like? Well, you know what I mean? yeah. So chronology and even facts are obviously they're very important in history mm. but mm. that's not all there is they, right. they are not they are not all there is and you know one of it, it seems it seems sort of ridiculously obtuse but the question what is history is mm. is is going to be answered differently by by different people and um i can tell you that you know one of the main uh uh one of the main distinctions or if not the main distinction is going to be whether you think that history is uh a kind of collection of facts mm. surrounded by in a layer of interpretation okay or a collection of interpretations surrounded by a layer of facts mm. And that, that may seem silly, but the truth is that when a historian, even an eyewitness historian, sits down to write anything about what happened, mm. you know, his, what he believes are the facts are still going to have some element of interpretation mixed in. So mm. a historian is going to have to ask himself whether he thinks that you know, like what what is what is going? You know, what what is more? What is the largest part going into the mixture, right? Okay. Because okay. because simply a list of facts like are arranged in chronological order that would not mm. be history. There has right. to be there has to be an element. There has to be some other element. And right. a lot of us would say that it's something like. 
you know, the, 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 the linkage of cause and effect, some level of analysis or interpretation, maybe even bias. You know, these things are all, you know, mixed in one way or the other. And um, when a lot of us are presented with history in school, all we are told and all that is expected of us is that, you know, some like we're, we're supposed to get the facts in the right order, the right chronological right. order. And that's not that's not uh, what I'm saying is that that's really not it. That's not that's not all there is to it. And, you know, in many in, in, in the, the further back you go in history, you're often faced with a problem with you're, you're faced with the problem that you don't really know what the facts are. That, right. That, that it's either a matter of it's either a matter of conjecture. Uh, or some kind of like scholarly consensus based on conjecture or something. Or nobody really has any idea. So to illustrate this point, we can take something like the history of ancient Egypt. The okay. history of ancient Egypt is actually uh, relatively well documented in terms of the length of king, like, the length of various rulers' reigns, mm-hmm. and you know, we, we so we have we have a relatively strong chronology. Okay. Right. Um, it, I mean, it can't really be verified externally for the most part, but we have lists of kings, and we have, you know, roughly how long they reigned, and we have a pretty good idea of when things started and when they stopped. So that's, mm. you know, that's that's chronology right there. That's basically almost as good as it gets. Uh, you know, looking at very very ancient history. Right. Um, but exactly what happened, you know, in each in each uh, uh, reign or during each dynasty or whatever, you know, that's you know that's not always clear. In fact, I would say most of right. the time it isn't it isn't clear at all. Uh, mm-hmm. However, to 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 complicate matters, I guess even more is mm-hmm. that. When you look at the archaeological record, you can find evidence of, you know, maybe war or building activity or, you know, uh, you can discover like large cemeteries or something and get a sense Mm. of uh, get a sense of like, you know, uh, the uh, economic class of the of the people you find there in terms of grave goods or whatever so you can get you can get a sense of like demographic changes or you know the relative affluence of of society uh or or different social classes at the time but you know getting down to things like you know like what kind of decisions were taken at what time by what king or what his officials did or you know how much it rained or um, you know who who the king's uh, friends were, or what he ate for dinner. You know, like that that sort of stuff. That sort of stuff is completely mysterious most of the time. So, so again, I would ask, sort of obtusely or rhetorically, like, is that is that history? You know, we we have we have the chronology, we have kind of an overview of what happened in huge outline. Mm. But something else is missing. There's like another element. We we can't really, in 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 this context, we can't really explain a lot of the time why anything happened, 
and we don't, and and that's because we don't have enough evidence. Right. Right. So, right. like, that's not that. So that doesn't really, even though you can kind of tell the story, or you can sort of get a sense right. of what what was going on. You know, I, it's debatable whether that's that's real history. On the other hand, you have something like the history of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides, which is very detailed. Mm. Um, he he organizes everything by year, and then he breaks down the years in 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 terms of like you know summer and winter, and he's he's got uh, he's got a lot of uh, you know a lot of very uh, you know perceptive analysis, and uh, you know he's he's all about cause and effect. Everything is explained in entirely human terms. There's no recourse to divine intervention or whatever you know mysterious like magical forces or whatever it's nothing like that but but there's no alternative to thucydides right there's no there's for the most part there's no other source that tells the story right there's there's a bit of archaeology that we have and sometimes it actually contradicts him right um like you said earlier before yeah, uh, it's, yeah, they're they're gonna lie, obviously, because human perception, bias, and whatnot. That's right. So sometimes it turns out that he's wrong, but for the We're most right. part, for the most part, we cannot we can neither verify nor corroborate it. So if you just took, if you were a scholar or a student or whatever, if you just took Thucydides and then repeated everything he says and then published your own book in your own words, would that be history? I would say no, it's not. Right, right. So, so like that's the opposite problem, where where it looks like you have all the facts and all the interpretation you need mm. in order to tell a story. But right. if you're just going to repeat, if you're just going to repeat, or you're forced, you're forced into a position where you can only repeat the story that you have because you have no competing account. Mm. You know, uh, you're 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 not writing history either. So, right. so I, I'm kind of giving you a roundabout, long-winded answer. But the 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 the, the ideal situation to be in, I think, mm. as a historian, mm. would be one in which you've got a large body of of uh, historical evidence in mm. you know different languages from different uh, cultures, all of which have not uh, influenced one another, and they're not mm. all drawing on the same material. Mm-hmm. And they're all telling, they're all talking about the same period or the same events. Okay. So that, so that you can look at, you, so that you, you, you can get a sense of how different, uh, different groups or different people are, are looking at the same thing. And, 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 you know, I would say that if they agree, you know, if they agree on the facts of the, of the case and, and, you know, cause and, cause and effect or whatever. I would say that you, that's as that's as good as it gets in history, and you know it's, that's probably the truth. Um, if not, then you have to look for some, you know, you have to look for some other interpretation, or find the one amongst those that you have that you think is that you think is uh, is right. Um, and of course, they could all be wrong too. So, of course, so, of course. Well, so what I find interesting with what you're saying here, and, and, and this is why like one of my main purposes of having um, this conversation with you is to sort of dispel 
the idea that history is boring. And I actually think history is one of the most fascinating subjects to study because it doesn't really have a place in the sense like it's not a science. So it's not trying to tell you, oh, here's how you predict where the moon will be 15 years from now. It's not, yeah. um, it's not economic policy. It's not trying to doctrine, uh, oh, this math equation leads to this. So go do that. And it's kind of recounting a tale, but it has a dual purpose to it. And I'm, what I mean by that is I was, I was, and I'm a big fan of Hafiz. And, and what I found interesting with, with, with his works was that he memorized bits and parts of his culture so that when the Islamic influence comes in, that that part isn't forgotten. So it wasn't necessarily to tell a tale of this king on this period on this emperor did this. It's more like, here's how we as a people culturally appreciated that which was around us. And so when the new rulers come in, they don't get to erase the history of that which was here before. Right. So yeah. again, if you look at it that way, history is sort of this beautiful gem that you can't really put on any crown because there's no place for it. It's just sort of this abstract layer that needs a much deeper and richer understanding of it so that you don't just dismiss it as some quote-unquote boring subject in school. Yeah, would, well, would you agree I, with that? I, I would in principle. I, I would add I would add two things though. Okay. First of all, first of all, it, it sounds kind of basic, but I think it needs to be emphasized that people have to decide whether they think that it's actually possible to know anything about the past. Like, obviously, I believe that it is. Right. But but there is a whole, you know, uh, there's a movement now associated with postmodernism that that would suggest that you know you can't that 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 you know that that there's no that that it's not possible to get any kind of certainty out of out of a historical source or a collection of historical sources because because you know i'm not sure i really understand their reasoning but the the idea that the narrative created by the author of an historical text is just you know like a creation of his own mind or that it's subject to the 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 distortions of uh you know it, the interests of a particular class or or you know political group or something like that and that the truth uh is, is better found in like you know smaller uh you know narratives that have never that have not been recorded you know to me i think that that's that's kind of a strange way of thinking because obviously you know, like obviously, most historical sources are not going to be focused on, uh, you know, day-to-day -day life or you know, like what 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 what's what a peasant that no one has ever heard of had for dinner or you know, <laughs> like whether he liked, you know, like whether whether he liked walking or riding horses more. You know, I I I don't I, I don't know why that would feature in an historical source. Right. Um, you know, like what the, the, the discipline that we call history evolved to be, uh, at least originally, it evolved in such a manner that it was focused mostly on what we would call politics and, and warfare. That right. the idea, the idea of social history is a, is a more, is a newer development. The idea of, the idea of, you know, focusing on, 
daily life occasionally you see books or like television programs you know called like daily life in ancient rome or whatever like that's not that's that's not what would have been understood like the, the, the word the word history would not have been understood to include that sort of thing uh right. long ago so i i'm of the view that when you look at your source you have to assume that there's something you can get out of it that it's not right. that it's not just a kind of uh interpretative framework uh from the past that is that is that is actually concealing more than it reveals i i don't agree with that i i think that we should reject that idea in in favor of uh you know a more open-minded uh notion of of what sources can tell you so mm. i i actually take that quite far so i look at texts like the shahnameh of of uh ferdosi mm. and and you know a large part of that text deals with the Sasanian empire right and and it's written for for those who don't know it's a long poem it's the Iranian national epic it's a very well regarded piece of persian literature that would not normally be considered a work of history mm. but but i think that there are that there are parts of it which uh you know include a large amount of historical truth and mm. uh I've demonstrated that in in uh, in my earlier books and I I've used it for for my upcoming book on Sasanian history as best I can which is not to say that it's it's always going to be accurate but there are mm. there are historical um elements of it which I think reflect genuine um you know genuine facts uh from from the past but the only way we would know that is if we look at we look at a historical source we read it we compare it to other uh sources and you know we 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 weigh it against the the facts that we find from other texts and you know something that i would call the balance of probability or you know just common sense you know right and 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 often often there are good things that you can you can extract from from unlikely uh unlikely sources um so that's the first thing can we actually learn anything about the past you know for certain i think we can um however in that long train of thought i can't remember what else you asked what was the other question well so so what i asked was like um in a sense, like the purpose of history is not always to record uh, events and facts. Sometimes it's to just record a cultural phenomenon, so that when the new empire invades, that the old culture isn't erased. Because and right. the reason I bring that up, and the reason I bring that up is because um, the person who cemented that concept for me was Orwell. And if you read uh, his collected essays, which I'm a big fan of, and of course 1984 and whatnot, the, the the whole principle is if you get people to forget what happened before you came around. And you tell them how things are, then you get to control entirely how they will behave. So, and and, and the, the purpose of it, and and I'll tell you an example of that from my country uh, in Afghanistan, uh, when my parents fled and my uncles and, and everybody I was involved, they took everybody's uh, uh, deeds for the lands they owned, so that nobody could claim what belonged to them for how long, whichever generation. And those these things are generationally passed down from one uh, family to the next. And they also took away records of people's accomplishments and. In education, so that if they were to travel abroad, 
they couldn't claim to be a trained doctor or a trained engineer because they didn't want the proof to be out there. So in essence, wow. part of erasing history is to cement your version of what you want people to do. So to me, I take it very personally when people come and, and as you stated, you know, this postmodernist approach of, of uh, eliminating history as a source of truth. And I think it, it's very Orwellian in nature in a sense that it's trying something insidious in the sense like it's, oh, well, you know, the person who is in charge is the oppressor and history is his narrative. And I'm like, that's, there's always a layer of that that's true. But that, to turn that as to the only truth is to miss everything else that comes with it. And so the, our, the, and that's simply why I was talking and referencing Hafiz because, um, from what I gathered, his uh, perspective on the, uh, you know, invasion of the Islamic Arabs into Persia was to maintain the love of wine and, and, and poetry and music and, and, and astronomy that was prevalent in ancient Persia, which I am also open to being corrected upon because obviously I have uh, limited uh, exposure to it. But so to tie that back into what you were stating was that history has dual purposes in most, most cases. Half of it is to record an event, the other half is to make sure that the cultural um, context isn't erased by whatever comes in that's new. So it doesn't right. allow modernity to erase ancient history. Right. So let's let's go back to the Shahnameh. Okay. This is I think that this perfectly illustrates uh, the the truth of what you're saying. Okay. That this is a poem. It's a poem written uh, at what would be considered um, a doubtful moment in, in Iranian history. The the Arab conquest has been, you know, the Arab conquest was, you know, long in the past. No one could possibly remember it. The Shahnameh is finished in the year 1010, by the way. And 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 the, the Arab conquest is is basically, you know, uh, the Arab conquest of Iran is basically finished, you know, before the before the end of the seventh uh, uh, century. Six fifty one is when the last uh, uh, Persian king uh, dies. Okay. Um, so the Shahnameh is written in Persian. It deals with all of Iranian history, beginning from the creation of the world up to the Arab conquest. And it was written in Persian uh, at a time when the survival of the Persian language was doubtful. Everywhere else, uh, everywhere else subject to the Arab conquest lost its indigenous language. Um, Coptic is no longer spoken except by a very small minority in Egypt. Uh, the, the, the Middle East now speaks mostly Arabic. Right. Um, you know, only only in Iran did the Persian language survive. So you have you have this sort of reemergence amidst efforts to assimilate or to suppress uh, Iranian Iranian culture and religion, and it it all comes back in in a in a popular uh, but by popular, I mean it appeals to, you know, ordinary people on a large scale, in 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 the form of this poem written in their indigenous language about their ancient history. Uh, it's not about Islam. It's not about uh, Arabian things. And 
you know, this is a sort of a reassertion of of uh, Iranian uh, nationality and and culture. So what I infer from that is that in the context of what you're saying, that there are examples where despite the efforts of, you know, rulers or tyrants or whatever, that it's impossible to to keep uh, it's impossible to keep people down. It's impossible to um, make people change. I think that part of part of the reason why the Iranian uh, identity survived is that it was so strong to begin with. And, mm. you know, the language itself was was uh, uh, so strong uh, or the the and, and the, the poetry. I mean, we've we've cited Hafez uh, before, but there are many others, you know, right. Uh, Rudaki. Uh, uh, menu chehri. There, there are, there are, you know, centuries worth of 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 Persian poets, all of whom are are, I think, drawing on Sasanian uh, and and even more ancient uh, examples, uh, and keeping keeping their language alive. And you know, in in other places, it might have been different forms of art, but in the Iranian world, it was poetry, which reasserted uh reasserted a national a national identity so the uh this is this is an example of how the kind of uh, uh you know the efforts efforts to efforts to keep a subjugated people down or to basically sort of impose uh, a new culture and a new religion ultimately failed so right. What you are describing, for the most part, I think is is the rule. It's a general rule of history. But in 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 the history of Iran, it didn't really work. And even even to even to this day, Iranian Iranian Islam is not uh you know Orthodox Sunni Islam. It it took a different course. The Iranian language still survives, even though it accommodated more and more Arabic. Uh, words as time went on, um, mm. but within w- within the world that was subjugated by uh, the the Arab the you know the uh, the Arab Caliphate, uh, Iran stands out. In fact, in fact, what we call the Abbasid Caliphate is essentially mm. like a it's an Iranianized uh, a Persianized form of uh, uh, of, of 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 the caliphate established by a kind of blending of, of well at, at best you could say it's like a blending of of Persian and, and Arabic culture but many people would say it's basically just a revival of the of the the old Sasanian Empire in a kind of you know Islamic uh, garb and um, you know one of the uh, strongest sort of ideological supports for it was looking back on on Iranian culture and and on uh you know the Zoroastrian heritage of of the Sasanian empire for for models for statecraft and so forth so even even in that case the the arab uh the arab caliphate was not able to absorb it and that the uh you know the uh, the 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 
the history of the history of the Sassanid Empire sort of reasserted itself. So uh, I hope I hope there's some kind of an answer to your question in that in that <laughs> long, in that long digression. No, no, I've always found that. So it's quite, here's our our interaction as far as I can tell so far, right? So I'm I'm in the software business. And um, if I, if you were to ask me a question related to you know software engineering or anything of that sort, I would try to give you a contextual answer because I was trying to incorporate a significantly larger portion of what I would consider to be a good answer to put back into to have you feeling like you were informed. Uh, similarly, your uh, expertise in history is such that when I ask you a question, you want to leave me informed. So you're trying to, and, and that's why I like when you say it's a long roundabout way, it's not. What it is, it's really contextualizing the information so that it's not, because the modern world's disease is sound by pieces, right? That's why this conversation and this podcast stands apart from everybody else, because we don't want to participate in sound by clickbait type of answers of saying X is Y. Well, it's like, well, given A, B, C, D, and E, here's where X could potentially be Z instead of Y. And that's what we kind of appreciate here. So, so given your, your, your proclivities of, of, of trying to wrap context around the content, I fully applaud your approach. I thoroughly enjoy your approach. So please feel free, um, as you're, uh, expanding these ideas. And the question I had for you was, was as follows. I've noticed that the, um, alphabet between, uh, Farsi, which is, I guess, a derivative of Persian for where I come from in Afghanistan, yeah. uh, and, and the Arabic uh, the alphabet that they use in the Persians, they all sort of, uh, I mean, there's a little similar uh, differences between them, but for the most part, 99% is essentially the same thing. My yeah. question is, before the Arabs invaded, was the Persian language as close as it is now, or was this been heavily influenced by the Arabic that brought into it? Because when I look at that and I, and I hear what you're telling me, I, uh, the first question that popped into my mind was, what happened? Or how was their um, alphabet different? Or was it different? Is it just a matter of coincidence that in Saudi Arabia, the way they're writing their uh, alphabet and the way they were doing it in Persia was essentially the same. So how, how do you uh, answer that question? Like, well, what's the take on that front? So, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right about the similarity of the, the, the alphabets, but here's the thing. Mm. Uh, the, the origin of what we call the Arabic alphabet is subject to some debate and there are traditions uh, in, there are traditions that that link link it with you know the Nabataean script, and there are other and I think that that is probably the majority opinion of scholars. Uh, there are also traditions which suggest that the the well, at least one form of the Arabic script was developed within the Sasanian Empire. By, uh, the, the, the kingdom, the, the Arabian kingdom that was, that was basically, uh, subject to the Persian king, uh, in, in sort of northeast, uh, northeast Arabia. They were the so-called Lahmid, uh, Arabs who, whose capital was at, uh, a place called, uh, Hira or Al-Hira, which is okay. near, near, uh, uh, you know, relatively close to what is now Kufa, I believe, in in Iraq. Uh, okay. In any in any case, the the that that's like these are these the two conflicting or two competing theories are both sort of based on legend. Um, but the fact is that um, Arabic Arabic is a Semitic 
language. It was, uh, it's not, uh, uh, linguistically connected with Persian at all. Persian is, as, as we said before, it's an Indo-European language. Um, and the adaptation of the Arabic alphabet to, to the Persian one is, is, is kind of, kind of unusual because in, in, in Indo-European languages, you, you really want to write out the vowels because they, you know, they're, they're not as predictable as they are in Semitic languages. Arabic doesn't write out its short vowels. Um, and, and neither does modern Persian, uh, because, mm. because it uses the Arabic alphabet. So that's kind of unusual. I mean, it, mm. it works and, and it's a very attractive alphabet to use for, for a language like Persian, especially in, in calligraphy or, or what have you. Um, but here's, here's the other thing. Mm. The form of the Arabic alphabet that is now current was yeah. actually, de- was actually developed uh, in Persia by, by a Persian grammarian. And wow. I, I'm I not sure if I'm, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to get his name right. It's okay. like, it's like Al-Sibawai or something like that. I'll have okay. to look it up afterward because this is kind of getting out of my, my field. But, um, that the original, the original Arabic script that, that, that would have been used for say the, the earliest generations of, of, uh, Quranic manuscripts, for example, um, it's, it's what is so-called, it's, it's the so-called Kufic script. Um, it's a more sort of square and angular, uh, writing that, that is, that doesn't have the, the, the diacritical markings or like the dots or the vowel signs. Those were all developed mm-hmm. later. Okay. Uh, so a lot of people will refer to the, the, the Perso Arabic alphabet because it has a, a sort of double influence or a double origin. And uh, I think that the, there's, there's, there are good reasons. There are good reasons for doing so. So, um, you know, to, to put it succinctly, the, the modern form of the alphabet is, is the result of, of, uh, you know, result of the interaction of, of, of those two languages, Arabic and Persian and mm-hmm. modern Persian, um, whether, whether in Iran, you know, Farsi or in Afghanistan, as they call it, daddy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, it, 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 it's basically, uh, you know, it's basically Persian in its in its grammar and in a, in a lot of its core vocabulary, with a lot of uh, uh, borrowed Arabic words. I think there are probably more Arabic in in uh, in uh, Farsi than there is in 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 Afghan Persian, but they're still they're still pretty close. I think that there are some uh, you know there are like differences of accent, and and maybe some words are used differently in one uh or or the other uh but you know for educated speakers like i I don't, I don't want to talk out of turn but i would imagine for educated speakers that they're probably mutually intelligible mm-hmm. w- would you agree with that uh it, it depends i mean for for me because uh, i don't speak uh, uh too much farsi but if, if, if a person if a person who's iranian speaks persian and they slow down i can understand them if they speak at the at the speed that they would speak to each other I get lost. It's kind of like, um, you kind of, uh, it's hard to actually put that into, into experiences because some of the words share similarities, 
but when they're spoken really quickly, the, yeah, the yeah. sounds are different, right? So when, when I overhear them, I have Persian friends and I always tell them, if you slow down a little bit, I can, I can stay with you. I may yeah. lose 90% of it if you speed up, but if, if you, if you slow down, I get 90% of the gist of what you're trying to say to me. Yeah, that makes sense. So, <laughs> and, and I would, like, for, for what it's worth, I would say that the, the kind of, I've, I've studied both, like classical Persian and and modern Persian, but for for what it's worth, I would say that I find Afghan Persian much easier to understand. Um, yes, yes. Uh, my my Persian friends tell me the same thing because when I speak, no matter what speed I speak at, if I'm speaking to a friend who's uh, speaking in Farsi, like or Dari, um, they they get it all. Like they instantly go, oh, "Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're saying." A few odd words here and there, but for the most part, I don't have to slow down to accommodate them listening to me. Whereas the other yeah. way around, they have to slow down for, for me to be able to, uh, to, to partake in the conversation. So right. at the point there, uh, I have some experience in validating that. Uh, so the other question I had for you is this, though. So if that's the case, uh, the vast majority of, of Saudi Arabia and, and the, the Islamic brand that they've preached out is Sunni in nature. How come modern-day Persia, or modern-day Iran, sorry, is heavily, if not completely, totally Shia in terms of the Islamic branch that they've kind of incorporated into it. Is that just the person who brought it over? Was a descendant and a follower of Ali a train of thought, or did they have a, a switch halfway through the game? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I remember in undergrad, I uh, I took I took a course or two on, on Shi'i uh, Islam, and, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Um... It's interesting that it's mostly an Iranian identity. I mean, I think Egypt is Shiite as well, but you know, when when you think about the the, the quote unquote Shi, Shiite world, mm. like it's it's really mostly Iranian. And when you think also about like the the, the great shrines of the of the Shiite imams or the you know quote-unquote saints of, of Shia Islam, they're all right. either in Iran or near Iran. Right? Right. right. And and the battle, like the battle of, of Karbala, that's that's in that's in what is now Iraq, but historically that was always part of Iran. It was always part of the Persian Empire. So, you know, it, it, it seems as, it almost seems as though it was sort of like destined to, to always be a kind of Iranian identity. And Again, I don't really know. I don't really know what could. Well, I don't know what explains that. But there, there are older theories. There are like re- really like 19th century ideas that suggest that Shiism is like a kind of uh, reassertion of the old Iranian religion within Islam. So like a kind of like re rebirth of Zoroastrian. Uh, you know, theology in a kind of Muslim disguise. And, mm. you know, there are, I, I, a lot of people would probably find that weird and offensive. Uh, I imagine. Totally, but, totally fine for us. <laughs> but, 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 you know, there's a certain logic to that. I, I'm not saying that I agree, but I'm just saying that mm. there's a certain logic to it. If you think about like the idea of the, you know, the, uh, uh, the emin- the theory of like the emanations from God, or the the uh, the various uh, imams. You know, if you're an Orthodox Shiite, there are twelve of them. 
And if you're like Ismaili or whatever, there are seven, I think, and then there are various other sects. You know, the that that there's something about it that almost seems like it could be under the influence of Zoroastrianism or something. And then there are there are some theologians like what is his name? Uh uh Sohrawardi. I don't know if you know that guy's name. Um he's He's from your part of the world. Uh, okay. I think I think he was I think he lived in Afghanistan or somewhere somewhere in Central Asia or something like that. Mm. He he was an Iranian theologian who, when you read his work, he he he's clearly under the influence of of Zoroastrian ideas with the, the idea of these. Uh, he, he's almost reviving the Zoroastrian idea of like the holy immortals and the 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 uh, uh, you know emanations of the divine essence and so forth being worshipped as as almost like other divinities and, and so forth and unsurprisingly he was put to death uh, as a heretic um, I forget exactly when he lived but you know there's some I, I think that there's something to the idea of of some kind of earlier Iranian influence. That, that produced what we call uh, Shiism, um, mm. but whether like whether that means that uh, how do I put this? It could it could be either that the that Iranian Muslims imposed that on the religion, or that they were mm. already inclined to favor a religion that was like that. If you see what I mean. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, I hear you. So I don't know, you know I, I don't know what came first, but um, there's also the notion uh, that you know the the Iranian world may just have wanted to be different, and that mm. um, the Safavid, the Persian Safavid Empire, which was established in I think the year 1501, 1502, mm. one of those early, very early 16th century, anyway, that. That's a response, and and that, that that was a Shiite monarchy, an officially Shiite monarchy. That's a response to the foundation of the the Ottoman, the Turkish Ottoman Empire, which was sort of aggressively Sunni. So, mm. you know, having having the opposite, you know, opposite uh, religion or opposite sort of like uh, I don't know what the right word is, opposite theology within mm. Islam would have served. Uh, would have served the purpose of distinguishing this new Iranian monarchy from from its biggest rival. Um, so, and of course, that it's it's really only in the 16th century that the that that Iran becomes officially uh, Shiite. That that, that Shiism becomes officially patronized by by a monarchy. Um, mm. But um, you know, I don't know. I, I I don't I don't know what what can ultimately explain it and there's probably not only one uh, one answer but it's it's very difficult to imagine i mean Shi- shiite islam has a kind of sorry sunni islam nowadays has a kind of austerity to it it's like the you know the wahhabist trend is mm. is one about like it's it's very much opposed to uh like popular devotion of of you know saints shrines or 
or uh, you know they don't even like music very much you know stuff like that right. it's hard it's it's hard to imagine that kind of thing appealing to to Persians right if you right. See what no, I, I, I hear exactly what you mean okay so what are some lingering benefits of ancient Persia that we enjoy in modern times but that people don't necessarily know is a uh, Persian roots so you know honestly the first thing that I would point to is just the idea of empire is it right right now in human history the idea of empire is not very popular right <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it's there there were big states before before Cyrus the great there were big states like the Akkadian empire or you know like the Hittite empire or whatever and by by they were big for their own time but the Persian empire founded by Cyrus is really the first international you know, world empire right. with it, it, it was starting from Egypt, going all the way to the Hindu Kush mountains. Right. That, that for, for the time that was an, an enormous, an, un, almost unimaginably vast state, which, you know, writers like Herodotus so greatly admired with its sort of centralized bureaucracy and its intricate system of roads uh, uniform coinage and, and even a postal service. You know, Herodotus was deeply impressed by the post office of, of the, of the Persian Empire. And it's, I, I believe that every subsequent world empire is actually inspired, is, is actually inspired by that, uh, vision. And that when, you know, when Alexander the Great sets out to conquer the world, he doesn't go to Europe. There was nothing in Europe. Nobody lived there. Nobody of any importance lived there. He goes to conquer the, the great, you know, the great world power of the day, which is Persia. And then on, on the ruins, on the ruins of the Persian Empire, he establishes, uh, a new world empire, right? One, one which, doesn't really last very long, but it because it, it quickly starts to disintegrate. But that that the, that theory of of a you know an international state where you know everybody lives under a common set of laws and has a common currency and so forth that's an Iranian idea. And I would even go as far to say I think this is highly controversial. Uh, and maybe you like it's going yeah it's going to rub everybody the wrong way. I think Perfect. I, I think even the unification of China under mm. uh, under the first uh, Qin emperor, uh, which occurs not long after Alexander's conquest, I mm. even think that was inspired uh, ultimately by the the Persian example. Obviously, mm. by the time by the time China unifies itself into a single state, you know we're dealing with the 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 uh, Macedonian Empire we're, we're dealing with like the the post Achaemenid uh, Macedonian Empire but I, but I still think the principle is sound that there were no big you know unitary uh, empires before before Persia and mm. uh, after after that every attempt right down to you know the the uh, right down to the Arab conquest and and even uh, the Ottoman the, the Ottoman Empire 
you know, it's still ultimately a still ultimately a vision of political order established by by Cyrus. So mm. I I, uh, I I really think that's true. Uh, I know it's probably not a popular idea, but I think it's true. And I would also say that mm. Muslim historians, like the very early Muslim historians writing in Arabic about the history of the world, they themselves had mm. no doubt that it was ultimately that the 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 idea of a world empire mm. and the, uh, even the the caliphate and the the you know the rule of the successor to muhammad that that it was ultimately a persian origin and they they, mm-hmm. they said so dinawari dinawari and masudi and uh, and tabari you know they're very they're very clear about uh about the persian uh uh origin of of this and with that in mind, we can mm. refer back to Herodotus and say, you know, even the idea, even the idea of a, a centrally planned road system and a post office, you know, those are those and a currency, a uniform currency for the world, um, you know, those are those originate with with uh, the Persian Empire, and of course, when we come to the Sasanian state. Mm. The idea, not very popular anymore, but the idea of having an established religion, having one religion, having you know one uh, ruling house, one royal family, uh, you know one uh, prophet, one holy book. You know these were mm. these were ideas that were developed there uh, first. Let's see. So I want to, because this is risky conversations, I want to delve into something that will definitely upset lots of people, which is what I like. Okay. So um, where I come from and where uh, my, my friends who are Persian, there's always this argument as to which country did Rumi actually belong to. Ah. And they will get into heated debate. So please have your say on that matter. And uh, for, for those of our listeners who don't know who Rumi is, please elaborate on uh, what you know of him, who he is, and which country he's actually from. Okay, so... Where you know where he was born? He was born in Balkh, which is in right. Afghanistan. Correct. Right, and then he yep. migrated, and he migrated because he was fleeing the Mongols, yep. Uh, yep. And, or his at least his family. I think he must have been a very young boy, and he arrived in um, what is now Konya, right, uh, in mm-hmm. Turkey. Uh, mm-hmm. Under the so-called uh, Seljuk, uh, the the rule of the Seljuk Turks. So this is why Turks, you know, the Turkish state sometimes claims that, you know, he he's ultimately Turkish or some such thing. But you know that, that that's not really true. And of course mm-hmm. he passed through he passed through Iran and he wrote in Persian. So a lot of Iranians, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of modern modern day Persians will claim that he he was, uh, he, you know, claim him as as one of their own. But uh, you know, he we should never we should never lose uh, we should never lose sight of the fact I think that he uh, that he he and his family come from uh, what is now Afghanistan in Central Asia. Right. Uh, Central Asia, and in, in fact, just the, the restricting ourselves just to the city of Balkh itself. Balkh 
has produced some of the most influential people in all of human history. Zoroaster himself supposedly came from Bach. Avicenna came from Bach. Um, Rumi. Uh, who else? Thousands upon thousands of, you know, well, maybe not thousands, dozens of, dozens of, of great, you know, Muslim scholars of mm. the golden age lived in Balkh. Um, you know, it's, uh, even the, that, uh, the famous, uh, collector of, uh, uh, the, the Hadith, uh, Ibn mm. Balkhi, you know, his name, Ibn Balkhi, he comes from right. Balkh. So, uh, mm. you know, this, obviously Rumi had to flee, uh, because of the Mongols, but, you know, Balkh is very far from being some sort of remote backwater that, you know, in its, in its, uh, in its time, it was the center of the world, uh, uh mm. you know, along with the rest of, along with the rest of Central Asia. But we should, you know, we should really never, uh, uh, you know, we should never lose sight of that. And, you know, the idea of like national, like, you know, national groups claiming that Rumi is one of theirs, you know, it's, that's kind of silly. Um, but, you know, the name Rumi, it's interesting. Rumi, uh, uh, is the word, uh, Rumi or Rum. That's the normal Arabic word or it, it actually comes from persian through arabic it means roman uh mm. and and it refers to it refers to the the uh uh byzantine or late roman empire and the reason why the reason that it was applied to to rumi is that that part of the world which was then ruled by the the seljuk turks was still remembered as 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 part of the old Roman Empire. So they, 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 you know, the, the Seljuk Turks often refer to themselves as the Seljuks of Rum or the like Rum Seljuk, mm. which, uh, you know, shows you the kind of, uh, endurance of, of, of this idea of the, of the two great powers in the world that, you know, Persia had fallen and was replaced by the, the caliphate and eventually that declined and others took their place. But, you know the the remnants of the old Roman Empire sort of carried on, and and uh, eventually one of the greatest Persian poets of all time uh, had his sort of nickname derived from it. So uh, you know, <clears throat> although I think we should never we should never forget that he came from uh, Balkh. You know, <clears throat> there's really no point in trying to make him into a a, a Persian or or a Turk or or anything like that. Well, you know, the reason I bring that up is, um, in my culture, uh, in Afghanistan, they actually call him Jalaluddin Balkhi, right? So that's yeah. his name. And Balkhi is because of where he was born. And the reason it becomes a sore, uh, a, a source of contention for, for the people involved in these conversations is that they take pride in, in the works that the person produced. And in honor of that work, they try to reproduce their own poets. And so what ends up happening is these minor petty cultural disputes start up and saying, oh, well, what do you pretend to be like us when it's really, you know, so that's where, that's where they lose, um, you know, sight of the actual vision of what those, what it's all about. Um, so uh, it's, it's a petty thing. It's one of those weird little disputes that people have who could only understand that if they're from the particular countries involved where the dispute is, um, is sourced. But, um, uh, what I wanted to follow up with you on that front was this, like, as a person who is a, a student of history, as you clearly are, how does that inform your um, ability to advise in the 
current political state that you're in because and, and I imagine being a historian in today's day and age as bad as it was you know in, in ancient times uh, there were no newspapers as far as I know and please correct me if I'm wrong and of course there was no social media and there was no uh, you know 24 hour news what would how horrible it is to be a historian in today's day and age given the fact that we can't even agree on whether a dress was blue or gold or if it was <laughs> <laughs> I forget that audio version of it, which was um, Laurel or Yanni or whatever the case may be. And so I, I look at your. This is why I find history fascinating, right? Because I'm like, okay, let's look. Let's take a look at what's happening now. So your your histor- historical knowledge and your love for it sort of informs your decision, your ability to um, give input to the decision makers. And then you look at what will happen 1,500 years from now when you know this explosion of various quote unquote fake news or my truth or subjective truth or your truth and all this alternative truth or whatever alt truth, whatever comes out, how is all that going to reconcile itself down the road? And how does it affect the way you do your job, uh, given your context of it all? Well, you know, that's an excellent question. Um, first, I have to say that I'm actually very disappointed because when I started, you know, getting interested in in Sasanian Persia I I was interested in it for its own sake but I also thought that you know we're living at a time when the Middle East is sort of making headlines on a daily basis and you know at when I first started out you know the, the daily headline was something about you know the Iranian nuclear program or whatever mm-hmm. and and I thought well you know Having having a having some grasp of of the history of the region will will be useful, and you know everyone's going to think that I uh, you know I'm an expert in something or other, and you know so on and so forth. And I, I found mm. that 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 hasn't been the case. That I, mm. you know I in 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 I've not really seen much evidence that uh, um, there's really deep interest. In, in in knowing more about uh, the history of Iran or anything like that a lot of people uh, a lot of people show have shown interest in knowing more about Islam or talking about the difference between Sunni and Shiite or whatever but I've not seen any parallel yet on on developing a deep knowledge of the Iranian world mm-hmm. and that may be because it's just so much different or you know the 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 idea that there's some part of the world that's Muslim and not Arab is somehow difficult for people to understand. I d- I don't know. I don't know what the reason is, but I haven't seen I haven't seen a great deal of interest. And I think that's a shame because I would say that Iran is still faced with the same strategic problems now that it always had. Um, the Iranian world and the Iranian sphere of influence is still significantly larger than the modern country of Iran itself. I mean, mm. even Af- Afghanistan is not part of Iran anymore, but it no. it still has, you know, heavy influence, heavy, huge and Central Asia, too. I mean, you think about the people who now live in Central Asia, it's no longer mostly Iranian the way it was you know, say 1,500 years ago or whatever, but mm. culturally and religiously and linguistically, there's still an enormous amount of an enormous amount of influence. You think about um, 
the region of the Caucasus, which Iran mm. borders directly. Uh, you know, uh, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, uh, Russia, India, Pakistan. You know, Tur- Iran shares a border with all of these places and, and more. I think Iran has a border with something like more than 20 different countries. You know, Canada has a border with what, two countries? <laughs> right. I don't know. Like really I, only one. Like it's basically, yeah, basically for all intents and purposes. Right. Right. So, you know, for us, it's like a country in that situation isn't used to thinking about what is happening, you know, in all these other different places that it, that it borders and having to worry about, you know, what may happen. But any, any potential development in one of those places is going to be felt in Iran and 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 the reverse too the 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 most serious example that i can think of is the iranian revolution itself in 1979 it right. arguably it arguably precipitated the the uh russian invasion of afghanistan and in order to contain they, as as the soviets no doubt feared in order to contain the spread of 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 uh uh you know the shiite uh theocracy and you know the 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 breakdown of the breakdown of modern iraq and the the civil war in syria and and all the rest of it we're we're seeing these events sort of you know rapidly unfold you know right now uh and and have been for the past 10 years uh or almost 10 years you know this is now the, 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 that those developments have left a vacuum for Iran to expand, right? To to mm. to project its influence further, and you know, this to a great extent, this is determined just by the diversity of peoples that surround Iran and which always have surrounded Iran, and the fact that geography determines that Iran has all these sort of. Um, I don't know what the right word is. Poorly defined borders, uh, or like easily permeated, easily permeable borders, right? Right. And 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 you have the same sorts of people living on both, living on either side of a border. So uh, that has never changed. Iran has always been like that, and this the strategic uh, difficulties that it that it faced. Uh, it still faces now. Uh, mm. Third thing, third thing is the going back to the idea of the the, the theory of the Iranian Empire is that mm. you know Iran. I think if, if I can speak of the country as though it were a person, mm. Iran has Iran has difficulty. I think imagining itself just as one other country mm. amongst all sorts of other ones. You know, I think Canadians. Canadians are used to thinking of our country as being not particularly influential or powerful and, you know, we're one country among many, right? Right, right. But I think that the Iranian outlook is fundamentally different, that, that Iran itself is a world system. And if you take, if you take the political theories of the Achaemenid or Sasanian state you know, literally, seriously and literally, it's that 
you know, Iran is the center of political and religious order in the world and everything else, all other states revolve around it. And, you know, if you think of, I, I think that the Shiite theocracy is actually very similar, that you have this idea of a divinely guided, uh, uh, you know, divinely divinely inspired guide in the form of the uh the the supreme ayatollah who is mm. the representative the representative of the uh 12th uh imam uh, you know and that the the uh the theocracy is established in order to 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 sort of maintain good order on earth before the return of of the uh, uh of the 12th imam the the mahdi and uh, and the end of the world that is actually not significantly different uh, mm. I, I i may say that is not significantly different from zoro many zoroastrian theories of of world history or or cosm cosmology mm. and and um it's it's I, I would say that trying to fit a country like that into an international system embodied by something like the united nations or uh you know interactions with with a body like the european union or nato or america or whatever you know that's going to be very very difficult if that's your view of the world mm. oh of course uh, so do you feel like uh the current uh, rulers in, in iran still have uh, dreams of yesteryear's empires. Like uh, I know Putin gets told this all the time that oh he just wants to revive the uh, the great Soviet Union for what it once was to restore it to that point. Do you feel like the the current rulers of Iran have this aspiration to once again revive uh, clearly an, an untenable solution in this point in history? But is that why you think they're having difficulties assimilating? Because most of the other countries tend to eventually realize the economic benefits of um, adapting to the new world view, whereas these guys seem to want to do a reset point to back in the day when they were, uh, you know, once an empire crumbles, there, there's always dreams of rebuilding it, right? Well, I have to, I have to say that I, I don't, I don't know whether, mm. I mean, that I would say that that must, that must reflect some kind of tension within, mm. within the Iranian world, whether, whether to, you know, continue to strive for a position of, uh, you know, regional or, or international, uh, leadership, uh, or to try to take up a more modest place within, uh, you know, with, within an international system. Right. Uh, but if you, you know, if you believe that your nation itself is, an, is the international system, that's, that's going to be, that's going to be difficult, but I don't mean to say that that the aspirations of the Iranian government are the, the the establishment of a literal, you know, empire or a revival of the the Achaemenid or Sasanian state. I just think that their view or the 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 outlook of uh, of 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 a people and 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 a nation will inevitably be shaped by its history and mm. and and 
to an equal or possibly even greater extent by its geography, and that Iran is always going to be forced into a position of uh, having to manage the, the, the numerous influences that surround it. And uh, those, those influences are often going to be hostile and, and mm. historically almost always have been. So I'm afraid my family have returned. No worries. So maybe maybe we can do one more question and 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 uh, and call it a day if that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So just going to ask you two questions to, to to finish off, and they're both kind of tied to each other. Um, one, uh, your top uh, three or four historians that you recommend everybody should become familiar with, and your favorite books that would help people appreciate history more, because as we know, memories fade when history is not uh, paid attention to. And with that, we'll, we'll call it a day. Okay, so I would say that when you're looking at the Sasanian Empire, the, the, two, the two best resources that you have are uh, the contemporary Armenian historians, mm. um, the best of whom is the, the, the writer that we call Sebeos. I think we don't actually know his real name because it's, it's only traditionally attributed to a guy called uh, Sebeos. But um, that that text offers a, a real, I, I think, a, a, a real view almost as directly as you can get into the Sasanian state um, from someone who was not really an outsider, but who comes from comes from the Christian world. Uh, he was probably a bishop or somehow connected with the church, but he he's writing with first-hand knowledge of of the uh, the Sasanian state from uh, from the perspective of a culture which was otherwise Iranian. That's often forgotten mm-hmm. that, that the Armenian world uh, is very much within the the Iranian uh, orbit. And second, secondly, one of the one of the greatest uh, texts that you can find uh, from the Roman world on the the Sasanian Empire is uh, the so-called history of Menander the Guardsman. And unfortunately, this text survives only in large fragments. It's been mostly mostly lost and 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 in some cases mutilated. Mm. Um, but it uh, it's written from the perspective of of someone who had uh, uh, participated in embassies between the uh, Persian and, and Roman states, and he's he's clearly got uh, access to uh, you know uh, documents produced by the the, the Roman and Persian uh, uh, courts to uh, treaties signed by. Um, both powers, and he reproduces them within his text. Oh, so that's that's sort of you know that's as close as we can get to something like a government document. Mm. Um, uh, how, however, for just sort of general general sense of history and you know, who's who I think is a you know like a great historian, you know everyone's going to say someone like Herodotus or, or Thucydides or, or you know. Uh, in in English, someone like Gibbon. I, I like all of those. I greatly admire Gibbon, and I think I prefer Herodotus over over Thucydides. But uh, when it comes to ancient history, uh, I think that the Chinese historian Sima Qian, who died, uh, I think I think it's about 80 BC, 
something like that. He is an excellent historian. He uh, is he 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 presents accounts not just of the Chinese state but also of the the affairs of Inner Asia and the history of of uh, the nomadic peoples on the borders of China. And and he's the first writer uh, from that from that cultural uh, milieu. To, to produce a, a, a serious and rational account of, of nomadic of the nomadic world, and he he's relying on the testimony of eyewitnesses, people who actually you know went and lived among the, the nomads, uh, chiefly amongst a people called the Xiongnu in Chinese, who may be the ancestors of the Huns, and uh, considering. If you compare him to someone like Herodotus, who is relying mostly on, you know, hearsay and rumor or, you know, conjecture or imagination, uh, Sima Qian is, he's clearly got some, uh, documentary evidence behind him. He cites the names of, of his, uh, informants, as admittedly does, uh, Herodotus. But these are right. people who, these, these are, multiple accounts that Sima Qian is referencing and and he's analyzing them and producing an account which he thinks is is the truth it's it's uh you know almost like scientific history from you know a very very ancient time and he's easily overlooked amongst um uh you know amongst the uh, western Western writers, and when it comes to writing a history of the period that I take an interest in, those sources on Central Asia and on the nomadic world, such as Sima Qian, are essential to to a proper picture. And of course, Sima Qian, you know, I think in the early chapters, I don't, I don't even think he mentions Iran at all. But you cannot write a good history of of Iran without Without that perspective from the from the uh, the world of Central Asia and, and and nomads and its Chinese sources who are which which are really uh, top notch for for doing it. So uh, hopefully hopefully some listeners will 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 uh, take me seriously and and look up Sima Chen for their own. Of course, of course. Well, we want to thank you very much for your time and your um, uh, expansive amount of knowledge about the Persian. Uh, history. Uh, no, my pleasure. Anything, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like to, to say to our listeners before we, we call it a day here? I, I wanna, I wanna do one plug of my upcoming book. It's, Please. it's called, the, it's called The Last Empire of Iran. It's, uh, it, it's, it's in its final stages with the publisher. We're working on, we're working on cover art and, uh, an index. Uh, the, the typesetting is in its final stages. It's going to be coming out probably early next year or maybe late this year if we're lucky. And yeah. it's published by the Gorgias Press. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be really the first, the, 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 the first complete, uh, you know, exhaustive narrative history of Sasanian Iran published in English in the past about 150 years, I think. Wow. So it's, awesome. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's not to be missed. It's, it's riveting stuff. Uh, uh, you know, buy yourself an advanced copy. Uh, you know, buy one for your friends. 
anyone anyone who needs to know about ancient Persia, you know, this is this is the book for you. Perfect. We'll definitely get the links and we'll put it up in the um, uh, in the show notes as well as your uh, Twitter handle. We thank you very much for your time. Have yourself a wonderful evening. Yeah, you too. It's a pleasure. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any conversation worthy of having will inherently be a risky one. Thank you for listening. Stay anti-fragile and carry on the ancient tradition and your own unique way of saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Ember Sadat and Ace Deliri signing off, wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.